had a discussion about Christianity with an Orthodox Jew? Yeah, you have. Oh, well, I haven't. <laughs> now, I have discussed Christianity with a Jew, but Larry was a non-practicing, non-believing Jew living with a Gentile girl. Proud of being Jewish, but more proud that he was flaunting it by living with a blonde, eating things he wasn't supposed to, etc., etc. I bought him a little book called The New Jew. He picked it up and said, Cool, what's this? I said, It's about Jews who become Christians. And before I could finish my sentence, he threw the book down and jumped back like it was a poisonous snake. I thought, at first, it was a joke because Larry was never serious about anything. But then I looked at his face. He was genuinely in fear, like he thought it would bite him or that God would smite him. The point is, I was shocked at his behavior. So were all the other Gentiles there, even though most of them didn't believe. What's going on, Larry? <laughs> well, we're not Jews. It's difficult to understand. My dad used to say, Jews are just like everyone else, only more so. <laughs> They're different. I've never had a discussion with an Orthodox Muslim, or any practicing Muslim for that matter, or a practicing Buddhist, talk to an American Buddhist, but that's far from the real thing. Never talked with a Shintoist or a Hindu. We just don't run into people that are that different from us all that much. And none of us, not one of us, has ever talked to a first century temple practicing Jew who needed Jesus Christ. <laughs> so it's a little difficult to figure out what exactly is going on when Paul deals with his Jewish counterparts, as we discussed last week. Today, though, we get to look at how he dealt with people to whom we are related. Gentiles. Okay, first century Gentiles living in the Roman Empire, so it won't be all that easy. But at least we can find something in common, some connection with them. And well, let's start with our intrepid tribune, Claudius Lysias. We better figure out his rank. A centurion was the leader of a hundred men. Well, somewhere between 60 and 120. A tribune was the leader of the centurions. Lysias was the only one in the entire Syrian Antioch area. The only one. So a pretty important fellow in the Roman army. And let's talk about his citizenship. Remember, this is not like America. If either of your parents is an American citizen, you are an American citizen no matter where you were born. If you are born here, no matter who your parents are, you are an American citizen. But very few people were citizens of Rome. In fact, the number of illegal aliens we have compared to the number of citizens is about the reverse of what it was in the Roman Empire. People there might go through their entire lives and never even talk to a Roman citizen. And there were huge benefits, especially legally, to being a Roman citizen. So that's a big part of what we need to listen for as we read this part of the story. Up to this word, 
They listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing there, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Notice the centurion says to Lysias, What are you about to do? <laughs> He's not going to take responsibility for flogging a Roman citizen. And note that the tribune bought his citizenship. Paul had had it by birth. Lysias may have wondered how a poor Jew could be a citizen, but he also knew being a born citizen is better than one who bought their citizenship. Plus, Paul's bilingual and was with words able to quiet and throw into tumult the crowd. With that in his born status, he probably has a lot more influence than Lysias. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. Did Lysias unbind Paul as a statement to the Jews? Us Roman citizens against you non-citizen Jews. <laughs> Maybe. Amazing to me that he commanded the chief priests and all the council, not asked, commanded. And then there is Lysias, the Gentiles' protection of Paul. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Why didn't Paul just tell Lysias himself? Why have the boy do it? Was it because he knew that soldiers, military men in general, tend to have a soft spot for brave young boys? Did he think that Lysias would be more likely to be convinced that this was the truth if he heard it from a child? Children have a much harder time pulling off a lie. For whatever reason he did this, was it to get the result he wanted? And what was his desired result? 
With Paul, we can be sure it wasn't just to save his own skin. (laughs) Certainly he was concerned with the gospel. Remember, just the night before, Jesus had appeared to him in a vision. It had told him that he had to witness in Rome just like he had here in Jerusalem. Was he just trying to do his part in carrying that out, getting to Rome? And could he maybe have been thinking that Lysias would have a soft spot for the boy and would be more likely to trust him as to the truth and therefore, out of genuine concern for Lysias, was he trying to draw him closer to the gospel? If we care about people, our fellow Gentiles, we should be thinking of these things, doing whatever is honorable to share the good news with them. Another aspect of this is Paul's trust to the boy. He was putting his life into the hands of his nephew. You know, the two aspects of trust, right? Trust in the character of the person, trust in the capability of the person. If you come to me for neurosurgery, I'm going to send you straight to my brother-in-law. <laughs> He's both trustworthy and a brain surgeon, okay? Now, if you want something done with tools, run from Greg, okay? Run from him. Great guy, great doctor. A disaster waiting to happen when you put a tool into his hands. I mean, terrible. Paul was putting a lot of on the line when he had the boy relay the message rather than give it himself. He could have done it. Lysias was already nervous about his mishandling of our Paul, the Roman citizen, so he would certainly be anxious to protect him. But of course, Paul knew he'd be all right. Jesus told him he'd witness in Rome. His trust in God was so strong that he was free to simply take the best route for the gospel. That's it. It's sure great when we can separate ourselves from the threat at hand and trust God so thoroughly that we simply take the best route for the gospel, for our lives. Just do it. That's great. Sometimes I can actually do that. (laughs) And what of Lysias' kindness to the boy and care of Paul? Soldier though he was, he was gentle in his handling of the boy and careful in the protection of Paul. He sent at least a third, maybe half, of all the Roman soldiers in Calvary in the area with Paul to protect him. Lysias and his care may simply be an indicator of the image of God in him. Though unsaved and marred almost beyond recognition, every human walking this planet still has some of the image of God in them. Every human. If they're breathing, they're still candidates for heaven. And we must never lose sight of that fact. With Lysias, okay. Maybe he's just protecting his own backside. Letting a Roman citizen get be killed when you have the wherewithal to save him could very well result in your own capital punishment, especially as a soldier. But it does seem like there's more to it than that. The efforts of the boy, Paul, and our tribune works. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they, uh, re- they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor. They presented Paul also before him. They presented, not delivered or turned him over <laughs> like a normal criminal. Now, maybe it means nothing, but it does seem they have a certain deference for Paul now. And I think that stems from Lysias' own attitude. More of which we get in Lysias' communication to Felix. 
And he wrote a letter to this effect. You got to hear this. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. (laughs) And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Okay, he really stretches the truth here. Clear to the breaking point. Okay, Uh, He's still a sinner. Uh, We should not expect sinners to act like believers. Of course, they're going to lie sometimes, maybe cheat, steal, whatever. So don't get too upset with people. Uh, And just like the centurion, he wanted to pass off the difficulty of Paul's case to his superior. Paul was a hot potato. But notice that he sees Paul as innocent, at least officially. And he does get to the truth in the end. And it has the desired effect, as we see with Felix in his legal dealings. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Felix checks the jurisdictional, legal, Issues and then tells him to keep him in Herod's praetorium. In other words, Paul was as much protected in the governor's mansion, that's what that was, as he was held in custody. No dungeon or cells for Paul yet. Still, the unbelieving Jewish leaders come and accuse him, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down... I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Felix had knowledge but without belief. But but here's an interesting question. Did he keep Paul for entertainment? Remember, no TV, no entertainment, no other media. Lots of rich people kept philosophers like Paul and doctors and, of course, actors and artists in their employ or as slaves just for their amusement. Trot them out when the guests come over. (laughs) And sure enough, it's not too terribly long, and that's exactly what happens. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control, And the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the president. When I have an opportunity, I will summon you. (laughs) Drusilla was Jewish, but we find out from other historical documents that Felix was in his 40s, Drusilla was 20 years old, and she'd already been his wife for four years. After being the wife of a minor king in the Syrian region. (laughs) She was persuaded at 16 by Felix to leave her husband and marry him. So her strength of witness to her husband was probably pretty limited. And if Paul is reality TV, then Felix switched channels when Paul asked difficult questions. What did he talk about to a guy who stole another man's wife? And Drusilla might have been his third or even fourth wife. So let's talk about faith in Jesus Christ, righteousness, 
self-control, the coming judgment. <laughs> yeah, People might put us off if we do that. Sometimes they are genuinely considering the truth or maybe they want something. Usually it's the same thing. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. The hidden agenda. Sadly common. We, at least, need to be faithful. The one without guile. We want to do like Felix and compromise in self-service. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Uh, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Felix kept this up for two years. And so did Paul, although in the right way. Felix chose politics in the end. Festus chose politics from the beginning. Festus takes over and visits Jerusalem. The Jews try to finagle a way by which they can kill Paul, probably because he doesn't realize it. Festus does not fall into the trap. He has the Jews come to Caesarea where they verbally attack Paul. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar. Have I committed any offense? But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go to Jerusalem and, be, and there be tried on these charges before me? Although Paul was clearly innocent, Festus tried to use him to ingratiate himself to the Jewish leaders, although he probably didn't know he was playing with Paul's life. He does, though, stick to the Roman law. But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If, then, I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Paul demands first that they acknowledge his innocence. <laughs> we should demand the same. However, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation Peter wrote so if we want to influence them we actually have to have good works for them to see <laughs> but Paul made the truth clear die death you can't give me up to them don't do this Felix or you will be guilty of the death of a Roman citizen by the way, why does Paul appeal to Caesar? Is this about his case at all? <laughs> Remember what Jesus told him? You must testify in Rome. He's getting a trip to Rome at the government's expense. <laughs> now true, <laughs> to go to trial. But for Paul, to witness of Jesus in Rome. Note though that Festus believes in honor, constitutionality. Most people do. Most believe there is a right and there is that which is wrong. Feel free to appeal to that. It's true after all. In any event, eventually we find Festus politicking. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. 
And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met their accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So... When they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat in the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. The king, Agrippa, seems to be in a more powerful political position uh, than Festus, but the truth is they were set up by Rome to oppose each other. (laughs) Kind of a balance of power thing. And when Festus uses the word Romans, he's trying to show off a bit. And before we get to Festus' understanding of truth, let's look at his understanding of justice. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. He wants things done right. Why? Well, for sure, he wants to look like he's doing things right. This is Rome. But by what measure was Paul determined to be undeserving of life by the Jews? or undeserving of death, according to Felix. Well, by men's measurement, in both cases. But both of them were wrong. (laughs) The measurement that matters is God's. What is the truth? Paul and every other human that ever lived, save Jesus, deserves death, physical and eternal. Grace and grace alone can save us. And this Paul makes clear, and so should we. But now we can finally consider Festus and his recognition of the gospel. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Did Festus know that Paul asserted Jesus, who was dead, was now alive? Is that what he understood? Or did he think that either the Jews or Paul were wrong? Jesus never died. Or Paul was mistaken and he was dead. We'll talk later about all of Paul's defense before Agrippa, but for now let's look at Festus' response as Paul reaches his main point. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. 
Festus interrupts a conversation with a king. He truly thought this was amazing. I don't think he knew Paul's claim until this moment. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. People today think we're crazy. (laughs) And we must say, no, what we say is true. It is, when you put all the claims together, rational. And it was not done in a corner. The four historical records now found in the Bible make it clear. Roman records testify to these claims. Opposing Jewish history shows these claims were contemporary with Paul and the other apostles. You can't give a date without agreeing that the very history of the world is bisected by Jesus Christ. We have a faith that is true, rational, well-known throughout the world and history. People... Gentiles like us might want to pass us off as a hot potato. (laughs) Just get rid of these guys. They'll almost certainly misunderstand us and how we fit into the world. And we might be able to appeal to their soft spots. And if we care, we should. When they get to know us, they'll likely treat us better. Although they'll probably stretch the truth, etc., Some may see us as simple entertainment, nutcases that are fun to listen to. (laughs) Or they might be nervous when they hear of faith in Jesus Christ and when we reason with them about righteousness, self-control, the coming judgment. Maybe they'll try to get something from us. Money's usually in there. And certainly we might be used for political gain. Lots of times... They won't even know what it's all about. How serious it is. It's your eternal existence. We need to make the truth clear. They don't always know that everyone deserves death. When they finally get what we are saying about Jesus' resurrection and call it crazy, we have to say, no, it's true. It's rational. It's well-documented. It is, after all, the only way to eternal life. It's the only way you can get it. You'd expect you'd expect it to be true and rational and well-known if that was true, wouldn't you? We hope you've enjoyed this message first heard at Living Hope Church of Westport. Please feel free to worship with us maybe this next Sunday. You can also join us online at southbeachhope.org. We'd appreciate your financial support if that is possible. We are a tiny church in a small town, but at least with the help of Sermon.net, we can share the good news with you and everyone around the world. Hopefully we'll someday be able to worship God together in person, if not in Westport, at least in the rapture.